Welcome to the Vertical Church Podcast. We're excited to have you join our new series, Choked. This series is about how life events choke us from God's own heart and what we must do to overcome those events. While you are here, be sure to click subscribe and invite your friends to listen. Here's the message from Pastor Brian. I struggle with overworking. So often I find that my place in the family dynamic is focused more on me providing and bringing money home than being present. When I am home, I find myself focused more on finding work and other ways to provide for my family than being present with my children. And when I do, I am choked. Aren't you glad to be here today? Aren't you glad to be in the presence of the Lord with other believers who confess Him as Lord as well? Aren't you glad to be part of the only group on the planet that Jesus has said the gates of hell will not prevail against this group? Amen. 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 I'm grateful as well. Uh, I hurt for those outside the faith who face the struggles of life, who face tragedy, and have no hope. I want to take just a moment to pray um, for our nation, for the folks in El Paso and Michigan, countless others who are hurting today. Some know the hope of Jesus Christ, but many do not, even in the midst of that. Let's pray together. Father, we are overwhelmed that you would invite us, extend grace to us who are sinners, undeserving, unworthy, deserving of judgment, that you would send your son, the treasure of heaven, to earth to take what he did not deserve, but instead what we deserved so that we could have what he actually deserved, life and full inheritance. I thank you that you've made us part of your family by faith, not by our works, not by our efforts, not by trying our best, not by trying to live up to some code, rule, law, but only by faith. Father, this morning our hearts are heavy for those that have suffered loss within the past 24 hours, who don't have answers to their questions and perhaps never will. Father, I pray you would send your spirit there, your people there to those places to give great comfort and hope in the midst of such darkness. And Father, I pray you would You'd remove this blight that's upon our land of violence. Jesus, we're asking you to intercede. We're asking you to remove the force of the enemy that is deceiving the minds of men and women, that is blinding them, that is filling them with rage. 
I pray that would be overcome by the spirit of grace and power and truth, that those who seek to do harm would be shut down, removed, and put out of a place where they can do anything like that, that they would come to know even peace and grace in our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that we as the church would be the one who stand on the front line to offer hope, but more than that, offer truth and offer an answer. There are problems in our land today that no law could ever solve because they are problems greater than a law. They go all the way into the heart. And you have called us as the church to go to and be in that culture and speak the truth because that alone can set men free. That alone can bind up those who are hurting and grieving. That alone is the only answer. So, Father, we cry out today as your people. May we accept the challenge. And may your spirit flood our land today with a spirit of repentance mixed with hope, mixed with grace, mixed with change, and filled with life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm grateful for salvation in Jesus Christ. Amen. For change that comes to us. And I'm also grateful that it doesn't just stop there. God is, uh, is about far more than just a one-time salvation event in your life. It was just the beginning. And just like you and I would not go through the process in, our, in a marriage of a wife having a baby and say, oh, we did it, great, see you later. We would never do that. We would raise that child, bring them up, train them. And that's exactly what God does for each of us. You have been born again if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, and that's just the beginning. He's growing you up. He's changing you. And so your life every day... He is strategically working in to help you grow up into something you have not been. He's changing you. He's transforming you. He's, he's so wise and so powerful that he knows how to uniquely design the events of your life so that you will be transformed so that you will experience him, cry out to him, and be changed. Because none of us want to be the same a year from now as we are today. Right? No one wants that. I know that's true. You wouldn't even be here this morning. You'd be off somewhere else just being the same as you've always been. But you have gathered here today. We've come together today to say, God, we want to see you in a way we've never seen you. We want to be in a way we've never been. So change us, and that's why we are here. Amen? And God is faithful. He will do that. He is doing that. He says our heart is like soil. He is planting seed in us that is his truth and his promises. It's interesting to me that they start off as seed, small, hard to see, not what they're going to ultimately be, a seed. He plants it. He calls us to receive it, believe it, grow in it, and allow it to grow in us. That's what we do. And he calls us as the soil to be free from anything that could be a distraction to the seed growing. He, Jesus told a parable in the Gospels about a sower, a man who went out to sow some seed. 
He planted the seed. He said, and some of the seed fell on the soil that was hard, and the seed couldn't grow because the soil was so hard. Sometimes our hearts can get hard, and someone can be speaking truth to you. God can be giving you truth, but it just bounced right off because your heart is hard. He says, some of the seed fell on soil where there were rocks, and it had a little bit of soil, and it grew up initially, but then it didn't really last. And some of the seed fell on some soil where there were some thorns, weeds, vines growing. And though the seed took root and the seed grew, it had life. It eventually had the vines, weeds, thorns cover it and choke it out. So that even though there was life, what it was intended to become never got to become because it was filled with all of the other vines and weeds and thorns. And Jesus said, those are so much like the cares of this world that come in and they, they take up the room in our heart. They take over, they demand a lot of attention. And so although you may believe, be a believer in Jesus Christ and began well, the cares of so many other things have distracted you, taken your attention away, and you have become choked. The life that God has intended to grow in you has not produced the fruit that you wanted, that he wanted. We're in our series called Choked, and we've been looking at some of the ways that our hearts really do become distracted from what God really wants to do in our heart. And we've used some, um, some real-life examples from agriculture to see how they provide a picture for us. Because everything that's in the natural world is a great metaphor for what's the reality in the spiritual world. world. So we've looked at things like uh, the crazy bamboo that grows in my backyard that's invasive and takes over. We've looked at English ivy. We've talked about how it's invasive and takes over. We've looked at a lot of different weeds. But today we're going to talk about one that is really... It's kind of deceptive. Let me show you a picture of Chinese wisteria. Have you ever seen any Chinese wisteria before? It's really beautiful. I mean, like, wow, that's awesome. Who wouldn't want some of that, you know, hanging around their yard? Now, if you are a plant expert, you'll know that there is a Chinese wisteria, a Japanese wisteria, and there's actually a Texas wisteria that's been made just for Texas. And the Texas one is not going to be near as bad as the Chinese version we'll be talking about today because the Chinese wisteria is actually on the invasive plant list. In other words, you do not want that around. And you think, who would want that around? I mean, that's awesome. I mean, that's the kind of stuff you go to Hobby Lobby and Michael's and they've got plastic versions of that stuff, <laughs> right? Because it's, it's so nice looking. It's got these beautiful flowers that are kind of this pink lavender, and they have a white version as well. The blooms are like 15 inches long, and the vines can last up to 50 years. And they, wow, why would you not want that? Let me show you what it looks like when it's climbing on a wall. It's a vine, and so, yeah, it just kind of takes over after a while. I was like, whoa, this one's been growing for a while. It's doing some stuff, but I know what you're thinking. What's wrong with that? That looks pretty awesome, you know? I'd have that on my house, you know? It's what you're thinking as well. These vines can grow up to... 70 feet long. That's a long vine. And what's fascinating about them is that when they grow, they grow in a 
counterclockwise spiral around whatever they come to. Always counterclockwise. That's kind of fascinating design that God put into that. It makes these seed pods in season that they grow, and they're like six inches long, and the seeds are inside this pod, and when it comes time, they go pop. So you can actually hear them pop, and the seeds shoot out from it. And wherever it grows and touches the ground, it sprouts root and continues to grow even further. The thing about Chinese wisteria, it's very aggressive. It doesn't always look this pretty. We're kind of seeing the, the pretty version of it. Let me show you the not-so-pretty version of Chinese wisteria. The blooms look awesome, but if you look what's happening, it's overtaken some trees here. Let me zoom up and show you another picture. Yeah, do you see that? Do you see the size of those vines? Some of those can reach up to 15 inches in diameter and they choke whatever they have found their way onto and they kill it so that it has no more life. It becomes the host that takes over. It dominates, it controls, it becomes what lives and what it is holding to becomes what dies. Chinese wisteria, beautiful, alluring, deceiving, deadly to what it finds. Today we're going to look at a... Um, a vine that can grow in our own hearts. A vine that if you're not careful, you'll think, oh, but that seems so, that seems so good and alluring and nice. I just, I just enjoy this a little bit. But you let this one thing have some root in your heart and you'll soon find yourself consumed with it and it will become destructive to you. Our weed today we're talking about is the weed of discontent. Of discontent of not being content with what you have. Mm. You know, over the past several weeks and going through this series, I, I get to hear stories from folks, and I hear so many say, wow, God was just all over me today. And some people even say to me, and I've told you this before here, someone say to me, why are you talking straight to me today? <laughs> I'm not. I don't know your backstory. I've been listening to your house. You know, your spouse doesn't come to me and tell me, hey, make sure you say this today. That didn't happen. That is evidence of God speaking. When he can speak to a person here, a person there, and a person here, and a person here, and he knows how to say exactly what needs to be said in those situations by his spirit and through his truth, that's only him. Amen. Amen? Amen. And I am praying, as I know we all are, that he will do the same today, that he'll speak to us. That wherever there are some weeds in our life that need to come out, we'll let him do that work, right? Let him do it and let him grow what he wants to grow. So discontent happens when I look at my circumstances, I look at what I have, and then I all of a sudden notice what somebody else has. I see it on social media, I see it on TV, I see it in the movies, I see it when I go out in public, I see it everywhere, and all of a sudden, what someone else has, to me, becomes what I should have, and what I have, all of a sudden, I become very unhappy with. I am no longer content with what I have, and actually what God has for me. Well, this can happen in a lot of ways. Sometimes you can look at what someone else is driving, 
You can look at what someone else is living in. You can look at what they have, their things, and become discontent with what you have. We have an entire marketing system in our culture today based on that. It's based on trying to make you feel discontent with what you have, that you need this product. You can't be happy with what you have. You deserve something else, things. It also happens with appearance today. We look at others, we look at ourselves, and we all of a sudden become discontent with what we have. We look at other people's family, we look at circumstances, and when you start letting discontent have its way in, you find yourself depressed, frustrated, upset, angry, and you say things like this, man, my life could have been like that if I would have had the same possibilities they had, same family they had, same situation opportunities they had, talents they had, and all of those bring you to a place of unhappiness with where you are. And you conclude, therefore, my life must be warped. There must be something wrong with me because I am not happy. And the reason is because I don't have what I should have had. And you arrive at this place of true discontent. Discontent is deceptive. It starts off kind of alluring, kind of like Chinese wisteria. You just want to look around. I remember as a child, I couldn't wait for the Montgomery Ward Christmas catalog to come in the mail. Right? It was our version of the internet back in the day. You know? The problem is it only had one site. It's the Montgomery Ward. That was it. But man, that was the thing to do in the downtime was get the Montgomery Ward Christmas catalog and look at it. And look at all the toys. That's what I looked at. Looked at all the things in there that I didn't have. And my long list of things that I wanted. And you circled those things. And you made a list of those things. And you gave them to mom and dad. Or Santa Claus. You gave them in hopes of a glorious Christmas morning. Right? And sometimes those Christmas mornings were glorious. But honest confession, there were some times I got to Christmas morning, opened presents, and at the end was like, well, is that all? Hello? Anybody else? Come on now. Don't leave me hanging out here. Yeah, thank you. That's what happens. Because when you build up this expectation of what you think you ought to have, and that would make you happy, you become discontent even with what you have. You have been given to, I had been given to, but I couldn't even be happy because I had my eyes set on so many other things. I couldn't even be grateful. And boy, discontent slips in. It starts in the heart and it is so destructive. We're going to look at a story today from scripture as we've been doing each week. We've been looking at the stories of real life people in real life situations who had real life struggles, but found real hope in God. So turning your Bibles today, 2 Kings, it's the Old Testament, chapter 5, 
Here's your hint. It comes right after 1 Kings. So uh, check that out. If you've got your Bible app, whatever it is you're looking at there, follow me, 2 Kings. I'm going to do something today I don't, I don't do very often here at Vertical. I normally do all of our passages out of the New King James Version. Today, just because of the way the story unfolds, it's a story, and I want us to kind of get the, um, the spirit of the story. I'm going to use the New Living Translation, all right? Uh, the New Living Translation is a great story form of the Bible. It, it's not as, say, word-for-word word accurate as New King James or New, New American Standard, but for story, New Living Translation. Let me give you a little background today. Our story follows a man of God named Elisha. Elisha was mentored by a man named Elijah. How'd you like to be in that crowd? You know, and every time someone, Elijah, yes, yes. Oh, oh, you said Elijah. Did you say Jah or Shah? I'm like, oh, wow. So Elisha follows Elijah. All right, Jah and then Shah. And so Shah wants to do everything Jah did because Jah was used by God in some amazing ways. He's the prophet of God. He does miraculous things. He speaks to people. God uses him. In fact, the Bible records 16 miracles happened during his time from the God does through him. So Jah, Elijah, comes to the time when he's going to go to heaven, return to heaven, and Elisha, who had been mentored by him, said, God, I want a double portion of whatever he's got which is his spirit. I want that on me. I want to be your servant. I want to see you do great things. I'll I'll be the one who is your spokesperson. And God answers his prayer. If you read through Shah's life, Elisha's life, you find that he did 32 miracles. Exact double of the 16 that Jah did. Okay? 32 miracles. Elisha is this man of faith. He's a man that speaks for God. He's a man that God does miraculous things through miracles, absolute miracles, not fantasy. It's not just made up writings or true stories of things that God did through him. There was a time when uh, a woman and son were about to starve to death and Elisha is with them. And he says, well, if you'll, if you'll give me some food as a way of giving to the Lord first, he'll sustain you. Sure enough, God sustains this woman and son. Uh, Another woman and son had given Elisha a place to live. He didn't have a place to live, and so they gave him a place to live. And he found out in the course of time that she wanted to have a child but couldn't. He prayed. God answered. They had a child. It seems that as God worked through Elisha, it became all about the ways that God provided in some pretty miraculous ways. Every story began to be that. God providing in miraculous ways. Even when he didn't have enough, God always provided. The story's gone. That same little boy that was born, later he got sick and died. Elisha enters into the scenario. God heals him, raises him up. There was another time where there was a famine in the land and there's not enough to eat. And they gather around and they're fixing this one pot of stew that they're all going to eat. And so they start eating it and they realize, whoa, 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 somebody put something in here that just is awful. I don't mean awful. It's like deadly. If we eat this, we're all going to die. Elisha prays. God says, here's what you do, Elisha. He puts, it, he puts this meal that God tells him to put into the stew. God heals the stew and they all eat. And everybody's fine. Every miracle had to do with some kind of provision. So Elisha is this walking testimony of whenever there's a need, God provides. You don't have to be that, that guy. You know, Whenever you pray, you trust, God answers, God works miracles in your life. This is happening through Elisha. 
Now, Elisha has a guy that's like his assistant that hangs out with him, that he is watching his life. He's being mentored by him. And this man's name is Gehazi. He's watching everything. He sees the stories. He sees the miracles. He sees all this, and he's watching. He's like, wow, this is incredible stuff. God working through Shah's life. And he's watching all of this. Our story today begins on the end of a story of one more miracle. And here's what it was. There was a military leader. His name was Naaman. Naaman was a powerful man. He was also very arrogant. He led the military of Syria, but he was filled with pride. And he one day got a disease that was incurable. It was leprosy. And when you got leprosy, it was going to be bad for you because it was so contagious that you had to be put out of the community. You couldn't stay with the people you loved. You couldn't touch them anymore. You couldn't, you couldn't see them anymore. You had to be put away because of this disease. And this military commander who has kind of built himself up and is strong and bold and proud gets leprosy. Hmm. His servant hears that there's a man of God named Elisha sends for him, says, hey, can you help my, my master, Naaman? Elisha says, yeah, send him to me. Naaman goes to him. Uh, Elisha, sir, uh, we're here. You want to you wanna come out? Elisha says, no, I don't. I'll send my servant out and he'll tell you what to do. Now, you just don't do that to a military prominent leader. And this guy is upset. Does he not know who I am? Assistant comes out, tells him what he's supposed to do. He says, Naaman, you're going to have to go down to the Jordan River, which is a nasty river, okay? It'd be worse than us saying, hey, you need to go swim in the Trinity River. You know, it'd be kind of like that, but worse. So he says, you're going to need to go down there and dip in that river seven times. If you'll dip yourself in this river seven times, you will be healed. Your, your skin will be made new. He's like, you're crazy. I'm not doing that. That is ridiculous. That's gross. I'm not going to do it. Shah says, sorry. So... Naaman finally says, all right, I'll do it. He goes and he dips once, twice, three, four, five, six, seven times, seventh time, comes up out of the water, skin cleared. The Bible says his skin became like that of a little baby boy. He's made new. And he is ecstatic. Wow, look what God has done. He's made me new. He's given me hope. He humbled himself. He was changed outwardly. More importantly, he was changed inwardly. He became as a little boy inside as well as outside. And he can't do anything but just sing the praises of Elisha. So he says to Elisha, I want to do something for you because you have helped me. You've helped me find God. You've helped me be changed. So Naaman says, I want to give you some gifts. I want to give you some gold. I want to give you some silver. I want to give you clothes equivalent to tens of thousands of dollars for us today. And it's this crazy moment where Elisha, who has seen God provide for him so many times and be faithful all along the way, live quietly, live humbly, live just with what God provided. Here's this moment where he has tens of thousands offered to him 
for his service. And Elisha says, you know what? I don't need that. We don't. You can keep your gift. Naaman says, all right. Gets up, rides off. Elisha heads back inside. And standing there watching is Gehazi. He's watching this moment. This moment that is filled with all kind of anticipation, expectation, and, and what should be a moment of just incredible gratefulness and awe at what God has done and a reminder of what life is like. And this is where our story begins in verse 20. It says that Gehazi had a different thought, though. Here's what it says. But Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said to himself... He didn't say it out loud. He didn't tell a friend. He didn't tweet about it. He didn't take a selfie in the moment. He just had this thought. My master should not have let this Aramean get away without accepting any of his gifts. As surely as the Lord lives, I will chase after him and get something from him. You see what's happening here? There's a vine being planted in this moment. There's an invasive, destructive vine that Gehazi has just let grow in his heart. He didn't tell anybody, but he thought it. And this is where discontent begins. It begins in such a small form in some little situation when you are looking at what someone else has, in this case, Gehazi is looking at this Syrian Aramean soldier of prominence and wealth, and Gehazi here, a poor assistant to Elisha, they're having to live in the houses of other people. They don't have, they have to ask other people for food from time to time. They have to trust God completely. And Gehazi is probably thinking, mm, this is our moment. Come on, Elisha, just say yes, we'll take it. And he doesn't. And Gehazi is like, what is he thinking? This was our moment. We could have been something. And he all of a sudden lets complete discontentment fill his life. He all of a sudden can't see clearly anymore because all he's got his eyes on is what Naaman has. And it was so close. This is what discontentment does. It starts with a conversation in the heart. And discontentment forgets everything that God has done up to the moment. Gehazi had seen God provide untold number of times in miraculous ways. This should have been the moment that he said, Woo, I see what you did there, Elisha, I see it. We're going to trust God again, right? That's what we're doing, right? We're just going to keep moving. We're not going to take this. We're just going to move right on. We're going to keep trusting God. That's what he should have seen. He should have known 
God's always been faithful to us. God's always provided just what we need. This is our rhythm. This is what we do. This is what we're called to do. And he's going to provide for us right on down the road. But discontentment all of a sudden feeds on comparison. Discontentment feeds on what someone else has against what I have. It starts looking, well, how come they get to have that? How come I have to have this? Why don't they have this and how come I have this? It starts comparing. And it starts becoming frustrated at what we have. And discontentment begins to sour everything. Once it gets planted, it does its wrap right around your heart. And all of a sudden, nothing in life is good anymore. You walk into your house and you're like, yeah, this place is a dump. You know? And it's really nice, but you, all you can see is dump. And I don't mean the dump, but I'm talking about like it just looks like, God, why do we have to have this? Did you see what they had at their house? Do you see what they drive? All of that happens because you make this comparison. And when it happens, you can't even see clearly what you have anymore. Gehazi should have been the guy that said, Whoo, God has been so gracious to us. We've seen him work countless times in miraculous, impossible situations. That should have been what Gehazi said. Gehazi should have said, hey, I've got God on on my side. I've got Elisha that I'm serving. We've got our future in front of us. We've got a calling. That's all we need. We don't need the tens of thousands that would change us. But discontent started to get settled in Gehazi's heart. And it leads you to do some weird stuff. Discontentment won't let you rest. This should have been the moment that Gehazi went back inside and sat down and just rested and said, Whoo, that was incredible. Naaman, river, seven times, leprosy healed. What? That should have been the moment that he just rested and took delight in what God had done. But discontentment will make you unsettled. Discontentment won't let you rest. Discontentment will make you all the time be thinking about, how can I get this? How can I get that? How can I get a little bit more money? How can I work a little bit longer? And all of a sudden, your mind is never in the moment any longer. Your mind is somewhere else. You're sitting at home with your family, but you are somewhere else because you are discontent with what you have. You're thinking about working more, side jobs, this stuff, that stuff, the bills, what other bills, how can I, maybe should I, and all of a sudden you can't even rest and enjoy what God has given you. You can't find delight in what you have. You can't find delight in the way God has been faithful. You even look back at what you have and you see it with kind of a sour eye, like, eh, all this stuff. And discontentment will keep you from enjoying what you have. Discontentment will keep you from being in the moment. Maybe you're the dad. And it's your child's third birthday. And the family's all come over. And it's time to really soak up the moment. She's not going to be three again. And the family's there. You're all there. But your mind is somewhere else because you're still thinking about, how can I get that? You fill in the blank. How can we also do 
fill in the blank. You can't enjoy and just sit in the moment because your mind is racing. All fueled by you're not content with what God has already provided. It should have been this moment where Gehazi was worshiping. It should have been this moment where, Je- where Gehazi was grateful. But he can't be grateful and he can't worship because his mind is so far removed. Discontent has wrapped him up. Verse 21. It says, so Gehazi set off after Naaman. And when Naaman saw Gehazi running after him, he climbed down from his chariot and went to meet him. Is everything all right? Naaman asked. I mean, this military general, this leader, has gotten down out of his chariot. That's not just what normally happens. He's got servants. He's got assistants. He's got a full entourage. But he gets out. Verse 22. Yes, Gehazi said, but, um, you know, my master, he sent me to tell you that two young prophets from the hill country of Ephraim have just arrived, and he would like 75 pounds of silver and two sets of clothing to give to them. Total lie. That did not happen. But when you let discontentment get started in your heart, you'll justify anything in that moment. You'll justify lying. You'll justify time away from home. You'll justify your mind being somewhere else. You'll justify a little cheating over here, a little cheating over here because you're discontent with what you have. You've got to have something else. All your priorities are all out of whack. And it all started from some discontentment. And he's making up this total story. Not true at all. He wants the money. He wants what he could have had. Verse 23. By all means, take twice as much silver, Naaman insisted. Taking advantage of this man who has been changed by God. He gave him two sets of clothing, tied up the money in two bags, and sent two of his servants to carry the gifts for Gehazi. Oh, oh, here, here, take this and, and take this. Oh, and I'll send my servants to help you carry it all. Gehazi's probably thinking, whoo, look at me. I'm doing it. I'm getting it. (laughs) Verse 24. But when they arrived at the citadel, Gehazi took the gifts from the servants and sent the men back. Hey, brothers, thanks. You guys have been a big help. Hey, see you later. All right. They head out. Then he went and hid the gifts inside the house. See this? Elisha, sure, you're not around here, are you? He takes it in and he hides it. You see, discontentment does that. It doesn't like to be noticed. It doesn't fit so well in the full package of the heart. And so it's possible that discontentment can deceive us and we start thinking, well, you know, I can have a little discontentment on the side. It's my side hustle, you know, and I don't have to let that interfere with my faith. I can bring it into the house and not affect the house. Wrong. When you bring it in, you just brought it into the house. It doesn't like to just play alone. It doesn't like to stay by itself. Discontentment, like a bad case of Chinese wisteria, will take you over. It'll look so pretty. 
It'll look so attractive. It'll look so alluring, but you'll end up destroying your heart because you can't rest. You can't stop. You can't be grateful for what God has already given you. He brings it in. He tries to hide it in the house. Verse 25. And when he went into his master, he eventually had to go talk to Shah. Elisha asked him, where have you been, Gehazi? Uh, I haven't been anywhere, he replied. Discontentment will do that. It'll make you play games, make you not be honest, make you deceive, make you justify. It's like one of these gateway heart weeds. You, you let it in, you, you, you just open the door to all kind of trouble. Verse 26, but Elijah asked him, don't you realize that I was there in spirit when Naaman stepped down from his chariot to meet you? Don't mess with Elisha. He knows stuff. God shows him stuff. This is not his first time around the block. Is this the time to receive money and clothing, olive groves and vineyards, sheep and cattle and male and female servants? What I love about that right there is that nowhere did Naaman said, I'll give you these things. And nowhere did Gehazi ask for those things. What did Gehazi ask for? Remember, gold, silver, two sets of clothing, right? But here, Naaman says, is this the time to receive money and clothing, but also olive groves, vineyards, sheep and cattle, male and female servants? You see, Elisha saw all the way into Gehazi's heart, and he knew what he wanted to do with that money. And that's what it was. Elisha knew. He he knew Gehazi's heart. He'd heard him talk before. And this was Gehazi's dream. If I could have this... I could be something. I could have joy in my life. If I could have that, then things would be better. There was a root, a vine, a long twisted vine inside Gehazi's heart that was not content with what he had and what God had given him. And it had been growing for a while And Elisha calls him out. Verse 27. Because you've done this, you and your descendants will suffer from Naaman's leprosy forever. When Gehazi left the room, he was covered with leprosy. His skin was white as snow. That does not mean it was clean. That means it was covered in dry, itching scabs. He, in that moment, got what Naaman had. Whoa. Such a strong thing to come upon Gehazi. This disease that is incredibly contagious. This condition that causes Obsessive itching. I mean obsessive itching. All the time itching. Scratch it a little and it itches more. The more you scratch, the more you itch. 
to the point that in the Old Testament, you read some stories of where some people would take a broken piece of pottery and scratch just to try to get some relief. And the more you scratch, the more it itched. It's also a disease that causes nerve damage. After some time, you get to where you can't even feel anymore. These grotesque sores form that everyone sees. There's swelling. There's an inability to even know when there's pain anymore. You could be walking and hurt yourself and not know it because you have lost the ability to feel in your skin. And then it also affects your vision. Someone with long-term leprosy can become blind even. It's interesting that you... It becomes highly contagious, itching that's obsessive, nerve damage, and vision problems. And you stop and look at what was infecting Gehazi's heart, and you see the exact same thing on a soul level. Gehazi, because you have this in your heart and you haven't repented of it, it's going to stay with you throughout your descendants. You're going to have this physical but also soul condition because discontentment is highly contagious. If you have a friend group, whether it be face-to-face, text, social media, whatever it is, and somebody in the group starts with a line of discontent, whether it be about what they own, their station in life, their spouse, their kids, whatever it is, their appearance, it ignites a fire and someone else joins in. And soon, everyone's feeding off of it because discontentment is highly contagious. It spreads and it feeds. And it's incredibly itching. Once it starts, it will demand your attention. It's not one of those things that you think, like the others we've talked about, I'm just going to be discontent for a little while, and then I'll stop. Let me have five minutes of discontent, and I'll be okay. It doesn't work that way. You let discontentment begin, it will not stop. It is obsessive. It will continue. You allow it to be in one area of your life. Maybe it's about your possessions. It'll spread over to start being about your appearance. It'll spread over to being about your family. It'll spread to something about your spouse. And soon you are unhappy with everything in life. It's been completely soured because the vine has wrapped you up. It's what discontentment does. Contagious, itchy, and you lose the ability to feel. Mm, interesting parallel. It happens to our skin, but also happens in the soul of the person who's discontent. They no longer feel gratefulness. If you're discontent like me at Christmas as a child, even when you get something, you're unhappy with it. You ought to be at a place of a gratefulness for what you've received. But instead, you complain about everything. I don't like this. I don't like that. Why are they doing that? Who do they think they are? Why do I have to go through this? This isn't fair. This isn't right. And 
Once you let it start, it will take over your heart. Contagious, itching, nerve damage, and vision trouble. When you let this contentment enter in, it will affect how you see your life, the people around you, your spouse all of a sudden become this person that can only do wrong. Your boss will become all of a sudden the person who can only do wrong. Your children will become all of a sudden the ones who can only do wrong. You will see everything that you have as something to complain about instead of something you should be grateful for. So that's all pretty disheartening, isn't it? Let's find some hope in Scripture. Hebrews 13, we'll wrap up here with some hope and some truth. I need some hope and truth in life. I need some place to go with all this because I think we can all identify with where we are so far in the story. Hebrews 13 offers us some hope. Hebrews 13 verse 5 is where we start today. And the writer there writes to a group of people who are struggling in some of the same ways. And verse 5 says, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Let's just pause right there for just a moment. Keep your lives free from the love of money and stuff and needing more. Love is something you give to the things that give you life. Love is reserved for God. Love should be reserved for a spouse. Love should be reserved for your children. You give love to them. Things and money should never have our love. They might have our like, but they don't have our love because money can never give you what God can give you. Hey, trust me, I know the feeling. I know what it's like to walk into a store and feel like I got to buy something. You ever done that? Have you ever just gotten on Amazon and feel like, I got to buy something? I don't know what it is. So let's just... Hello, anybody else with me here today? Thank you. You just get in that situation like, well, I'm here at the store. I got to buy something. How many of you have ever gone into Walmart, Target, Home Depot, Academy or something? You went in to buy one thing and you bought far more than the one thing. Hello, anybody? Thank you. Yes, that's what that is. Because you think, I feel great buying this thing, but I'd feel better if I had this. Oh my goodness, you got these too? Oh, well, looky there. You know, hey, let's go. And they're on sale. Honey, I saved so much money today. Right? I also know the feeling of not being in a good place emotionally, mentally, spiritually, and walking into a store. Oh, no, that's bad. It's really bad because then you go in, and then you're the guy who comes out, and you're like, I don't even know why I bought all this stuff. I just did, and I don't even feel better about myself. Honey, you know, all this happens because sometimes we think some more stuff would do something. If I had some more this, that, more hunting stuff, more fishing stuff, more cooking stuff, more decorating stuff, more clothes stuff, you name it. And boy, it's never more than a click away. I mean, you could actually be shopping on Amazon right this minute, really. I mean, right, that's just how it works today. But that stuff is never supposed to be what we love. What he says here, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content, be settled, be okay. And not just okay, but actually happy. 
joyful, grateful for what you have right now. If you got a list of stuff that you've been wanting to get, maybe you need to pray through it. Maybe you need to think twice about it. There's nothing wrong with buying new stuff. There's nothing wrong with updating some stuff. But make sure you're doing it in God's time, in God's way, under God's direction. And not just so you can be more happy, at peace, less guilty, whatever. Stuff can't do that. Look back at what you've received and be content. I love what it says here. It says, because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. You stop and look at that verse, you think, oh, wait a minute. There's some stuff that doesn't seem to go together. Keep your lives free from love of money and be content with what you have. Got it. Because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Don't got it. Why do those two go together? What are those two doing in the same verse? Because when you lean into money or possessions or things or what somebody else has, and you get out of the lane that God has for you, and you start thinking, I'd be more happy if I had what they had, then you're all of a sudden forgetting that God is the one who makes you at peace. God alone is the one who can give you joy. God is alone the one who can give you purpose. God alone is the one who can relieve your guilt and all that. God alone is the one who can settle your heart and settle your mind and stop you from having to work way beyond what you need to, do more beyond than you need to, have debt way beyond more what you need to and just settle some things. God alone can do that. And that's why he said, I will never leave you and never forsake you. You can go buy those things. You can try to keep up with your neighbor. You can try to measure up to what you see somewhere. Those things will let you down. But God says, I, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Here's the deal. You are going to face some need in your life. You are going to all of a sudden not have some things that you're going to want to have. Hello? Yeah. Right? When that happens, it's the moment to cry out to God. God, you control all things. You love me. You know me. Do I need this thing? Or is there something else you're wanting to teach me right now while I don't have? Ooh. Because that's what God does. Remember, he's working to transform you, change you. And so sometimes you'll go through a period of not having what you want. Money, clothes, possessions, the marriage, the kids, the job, so that you will call out to him. And in that moment, that's what you do. You don't run out to put a Band-Aid on it by buying something you don't need, by being upset about what someone else has, by trying to be like somebody else. Verse 6, we're finished. So that when you've done this, if you really did cry out to God in the midst of your need, so that you could say with confidence, with certainty, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals 
do to me. When you're feeling discontent, cry out to God in that moment. When you're feeling uncertain, when you don't know where the next thing is going to come from, in that moment, cry out to God. Let him answer. Let him provide. Because then, then you can say in your next time of need, God is my helper. I will not be afraid. I will be confident in this, bold in this, and I'll pass it on to my children and their children and the people around me. Contentment leads to confidence. Discontentment leads to insecurity and an obsession with trying to fill the gap. A gap that only God himself can fill. Would you bow your heads with me? God has spoken today. His word is true. He's confident that he is at work. His spirit is here. He's working in us. He's working to transform you. And there are some things today, my guess is, that he has pointed out to you and said, you need to be content. You need to just rest. You need to trust me and no one else and no thing else. Trust me alone. Father, I pray you'd forgive us today for allowing weeds of discontentment to have room in our heart. Weeds that have made us far too busy, far too distracted, far too overdrawn, far too filled with worry to even see you at work. They've taken our attention and we can't even be grateful. They make us complain. They've taken our attention and we can't even worship because our minds are so far removed. But God, you're calling the people back today. You're calling us back today to take the weed of discontentment out of our life, to come and say, God, you are our provider. You are our helper. We'll trust you only. We'll live simple. We'll live modest. We'll live in complete dependence upon you. God, I pray we'd respond rightly. I pray we would remove the weeds from our soil and our heart and be what you've called us to be and change what you've called us to change. We pray all this in the strong and the mighty and the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. As we stay in the spirit of reverence, I'm going to ask our ushers to come as we give our offering today. Today, as we give our offering, um, we're going to take this time and let it be a time of response to the Lord. I would encourage you not to let this become, hey, so what are you doing today for lunch? You know, let's, let's save all that. Let's let this time be a time of focus. Hearing from God, praying to God, responding to God based on what he has said to you. Christopher, if you'd pray for us today.